And hello and welcome back to the new Rainbow Cast with me, Artistically Aaron. And this is the interview with Venus Pan, which you can hear on her podcast as well as mine. Uh, as this is going out on a podcast called Let's Talk Disability, and it's been airing for three days this week. So if you want to hear to the episodes, that feature on a podcast, just search Let's Talk Disability on any preferred p- podcasting platforms to find the podcast star Fina does herself. But back to this podcast. This podcast, as you may be familiar with if you're already a viewer or a listener, as now you can get this podcast on platforms like Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible and uh, Apple Podcasts on Facebook Watch by going to the New Rainbow Pod Facebook page. Just search the New Rainbow Project on Facebook and you can also view this on YouTube. The, um, just search uh, Rainbow Cast Player on YouTube. If you you have anything that you want to get in touch with, Email new rainbow at new rainbow project dot com and you can visit and new ring at new rainbow project on social media. If you go to www.newrainbowproject.com, dot com, you can find more about where you can listen more and how you can get in touch as well as more exciting things and moving on to, to add to this. A platform as well as more sociable things like a Facebook group and Discord. So check back on rainbowproject.com website for more. And as I say, this is the Athena Span interview. So enjoy this interview. Do you want to start by introducing yourself? Hi, I'm Sarah Gibbs. I'm a comedy writer and author. Wrote a book called Drama Queen. Some people might have read it. If you haven't, please do plug. I'm obviously I'm autistic and very excited to be here today. All right. Thanks for introducing yourself, Sarah. As as we've seen about your book, I read out and it was excellent read and quite emotive and empowering. As you say, well, it can reflect on like the labels that you've been given for out your life and kind of focusing on as a member looking up to up until the time you got labeled or being autistic yeah you know like it kind of mainly highlighted you getting it labeled drama queen so so like i tend to ask about like at the start about the diagnosis and like when you got diagnosed and what like uh traits and experiences you're having as an autistic person Yeah. Oh, so my diagnosis. Wow. That was almost five years ago now. So I was 30 and it kind of came completely out the blue in what I think a lot of late diagnosed people might relate to this. It came completely out of the blue in one way and then completely not in many others. It explained a lot. But before it was suggested to me that I might be autistic. I didn't know anything about autism, really. I, I, knew, I knew what I thought I knew, you know, what, what lots of people think they know, that, that um, autistic people are maths, like savants and things like uh, utter nonsense or stereotypes. And so I actually, it was suggested to me that I was autistic by my cousin, Dominique, who is wonderful and knows a lot of a lot about autism for various reasons. We were just at a family party and it was quite an overwhelming situation. And I was sort of, without realizing it, stimming. I was sort of pushing the very posh food around my plate and not eating it. And I was dressed really bright and loud. And, you know, uh, I was sort of ticking a lot of boxes. And we we didn't know each other all that well before this. She just suddenly said to me, you know, you're autistic, right? And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm, I'm really bad at maths. And so that that can't be right. And she's like, that, that's not what autism is. So, and she just, she was so patient and very gently and quite bravely, I think, you know, given the potential for a bad reaction or the stigma around being autistic, she she explained to me how autism can present differently in different people. I just sort of, I sat there at the table and I found this little like not diagnostic quiz obviously nothing is diagnostic 
it yeah. officially, but I found this little quiz online and did did the checklist, and it was like, you are very likely autistic. I was like, huh, huh, okay, I guess I should look into this more. But it's supposed to be online quizzes after people to think, well, have I just think thinking this or have I been told this and it's just absolutely and then you can think, oh maybe I should look into this a bit further. Yeah. And as you said, it must have been quite a big thing. Like as you said, you never put the words uh seven autism together before that moment. And it must have been quite a big thing then. Just all of a sudden being told Sorry, you're autistic, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it threw me for a loop. And at first I was quite resistant. I did that little quiz and I was like, oh, but, you know, that's like horoscope syndrome. Like you, you can apply anything. Like I bet everyone would score high on this quiz. And Dominique said, look, I'm going to send you some resources. And like, if you think it's not you, then we, we won't talk about it again. It's fine. And she sent me this sort of list on how, I, I guess it's tricky because discussions move so quickly in in sort of liberation spaces and disability spaces and you know five years ago we were talking about autism in women as its own distinct thing and today you know we we very much think along the lines of there's no female autism it's just that our behaviors are interpreted differently or that there are different presentations of autism and those aren't necessarily gendered but at the time she sent me a checklist of like what autism can look like in women and I was like, oh, like sort of reading it the next day. I was like, that's me. That's not like, it's like someone followed me around with a notepad my whole life. Like even just really specific stuff, childhood stuff, interests. Like it was like, honestly, like reading a biography of myself written by someone I didn't know. And it was very spooky. If you didn't know you were autistic, then, you know, you'd assume that everyone's like experiences are like, what what you like is like, the status quo or what people are typically like and mm. then you know like it's just I guess it must felt like a surprise then to realize that you know not everyone else is in the same way as you and as we were saying then you know like with how things can progress quite quick in the community then and like how you found when you shared your word autism reference to yourself you were still thinking of like the kind of like main man ideals of the self-aunt yeah. and the math stuff. And I say about like the community moving quick and it's always how uh, far like the uh, rest of society is and the mainstream narrative mm. is kind of further away from what autism actually is. Yeah, it's a gulf, isn't it? It's massive between what society thinks autism is and what autistic people know autism is or uh, not even I mean I talk about autism as like this concept this sort of you know like, as if it's a condition because that's how we're we're sort of conditioned to talk about it so to speak we're we're taught that you know autism is a medical diagnosis and and all that and actually like you know autism is it's it's a neurotype and it's an identity and it's it sort of shapes who you are so like talking about autism is like you know, as a as a thing feels really weird even now. That's how far away we are from how the rest of society is talking about it. It is jarring. And I think it's it's really interesting because the more you're in autistic spaces and the more you're immersed in autistic culture and other autistic people, you almost sort of forget. And then someone will say something like, oh, well, we're all a bit autistic, right? And their rage bubbles up and you're like, you have to yeah. remember to be kind of like, quite patient with people because they they really don't know and there was a time when I didn't know and like if someone had yelled at me I probably never would have known so it's it's tricky isn't it yeah it's quite tricky then because it's like until you enter the spaces of like uh, what like the autistic communities then you're not non sure not don't know that much about autism and why and I, as you're saying about engaging with community and looking at whatever resources there is you know, like you can learn so much about yourself and mm. about, you know, what autism actually is. Since you've been diagnosed and since you started talking about it online, then you've been able to, to engage in the world of that. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's interesting because you, you're given when you're diagnosed and you don't have that community support beforehand. And this is why I think self-diagnosis first is so valuable, because 
if you if you are sort of self-identifying and you do enter those spaces a little bit before your medical diagnosis, you're less likely to blunder into them like I did, using the medicalized language that you've been given by your doctors, by your peers, without sort of the understanding a framework of, of narratives and discussions around disability. And so I, you know, when I was first diagnosed, I was like, oh, okay, well, I, I, the doctors said I'm high functioning. So I guess I'm high functioning, whatever that, like, I didn't think about yeah. what it meant or, you know, what functioning labels meant or if they were okay. I just, I was like, that's what I've been told I am. And I've been told I have Asperger's. It's tricky entering those spaces for the first time and then opening your mouth and finding out just how big that gulf is it can really upset and trigger people which is completely understandable because it's exhausting I know five years in how exhausting it is to hear people say the same things over and over that you know are like not okay it's a daunting thing when you're newly diagnosed trying to enter the conversation and probably getting it wrong because you haven't had that support and the tools to understand and it's all part of the learning process but I think because I maybe had a little bit not a big profile, but I had a bit of a Twitter following and I had my writing. When I made those mistakes, they were a lot more visible and it was a lot more embarrassing. I was just saying with, with your Twitter profile, I think it's like somehow like since like you had a bit of a following before then and I think since you've been diagnosed and since you started talking about it, I think like your like online presence kind of like increased rapidly when you were talking about self-diagnosis then. I think like being able to engage before and before your diagnosis and research a lot before that of like looking at if it's like TikTok videos of autistic people reading their tweets and different blogs of autistic people talking to autistic people. I think then that can give you the power to self-advocate as yeah. you were saying with the medical language and what doctors can say. Then it's harder without kind of self-identifying first to be able to know how to tell your doctor and communicate mm. in a way that can ensure you a more likely chance of getting diagnosed. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the knowledge is power and the more you have when you're going into that situation, the better really, because if you're prepared for your doctor and my doctor did say, oh, well, I don't see the point because there's no cure. Well, at that point, I didn't know a lot, but I knew enough to know that I didn't want a cure. I just wanted yeah. I wanted some validation and I wanted an answer. The only reason I think that I got referred on was because my husband via work has the sort of like automatic benefit from his workplace of private health insurance. And so I I think that my doctor was ready to say no. And when I said, I'll go private, he was like, oh, OK, here you go. Here's, he like, did, you know, washed his hands of it. And that was fine for him. If you are you're navigating a system that doesn't want to refer you on, that doesn't have a great understanding of autism, full stop, let, let alone like late diagnosis or autism in adults or different presentations of autism or autistic identities then you might come up against something. And, it, and it's really hard for us in medical situations to advocate yeah. for ourselves at the best of times. It's, it's scary and it's stressful and it's admin and, you know, it can be really difficult. So the more, the more you have, the better. Yeah, because as you were saying, with uh, the medical professionals and again, like talking to your GP about that, it's then difficult because you have to trust and feel comfortable and safe to your doctor to talk about these things and then hopefully like get like getting the referral from that sometimes it's not always like you're fortunate to get that sometimes then if you like it's stressed out as it can be quite stressful process then like it can be then hard to get words out then and just see the doctor saying it was pointless referring you because there's no such thing as cure then it's like it's not about care and the issue with the medical community is negative language around autism yes. expressing it mm. expecting it to be something to be cured or you know treated in a medical sense but like for an autistic person or neurodivergent person getting a diagnosis of any neurodivergent condition is about finding something out about yourself absolutely it's difficult because what do you do you go into a doctor's surgery and say but I just want to understand myself better they don't care about that you're a list of symptoms to them you sort of have to play their game a little bit we're not great at playing 
games you know that's not that's not in our wheelhouse necessarily as autistic people to know the right thing to say to make the right thing happen even if it's not true or if you know it's it's quite difficult for us to be honest with the labels you're attached on in the book like you were seen as lazy difficult or drama queen and sensitive it was like a point of getting a diagnosis is understanding about like these negative labels and understanding there's a reason behind this and it's autism with the negative labels you might have found something before but never like thought about it that seemed a bit different mm-hmm. hence the labels and it probably if like you went to the belief of knowing what it is absolutely I mean people when I first went for a diagnosis so many people said to me why do you need a label it's like, oh, sorry, just the one. Why do I need one label? Let me tell you about all the other labels. That's like you said, there's so much judgment and and self-judgment and lack of understanding and lack of compassion. For I mean, even when you have a diagnosis, there's still people who think you're putting it on or, yeah. you know, or, they, or that you're just a bit quirky or that you're very mild or all of these things. When you don't have a diagnosis and you're just behaving in a way people perceive to be wrong or odd or different or difficult, you've got no way to even defend yourself to yourself. You've got no way to protect your self-esteem and and your self-image. You start to really believe all these terrible negative things about yourself because you're hearing them constantly. It's a relief to get a label that is compassionate and explains things and isn't laced with judgment and cruelty. It can be quite exhausting trying to explain these things. Mm-hmm. And then if like getting a label like autism, as was, as we were discussing earlier, the thing of like the autistic community moving faster or involving the conversation around autism yeah. faster than the rest of the society, then, you know, when you like thought that people just perceive you as mild. And like since that using autism rather than high functioning or Asperger's these days, then yeah. I think there's some people still that would think of autism as what they see as like high, like the traditional, like, uh, look, traditionally seen as under the functioning labels of look more yeah. and over functioning all, I guess, support needs. In terms of like support needs, it's really tricky having that conversation, like you say, because we are so much further on in the disability community than mainstream society. And a lot of people, they might have an autistic relative, they might have an autistic relative with very high support needs or with comorbid conditions or an autistic relative who is non-speaking. And so they see that and they cannot comprehend an existence where where a life is still valid without all of the things that they value there's that side of it where they look at autistic people and they think low functioning because it's not the life that they would enjoy they're like oh all these rigid behaviors and narrow interests and they can't even do this and they can't even do that and it's like but that doesn't mean it's not a happy life that doesn't mean it's not a valid life that doesn't mean it's not a good life then what they do on the flip side is they look at someone like me who talks a mile a minute and that's a sort of special interest thing is a language thing for me I've always been hyperlexic I've always really enjoyed using language I've I've always enjoyed overusing language they assume because I'm highly verbal that I am wildly competent in all other areas one of the things I hear a lot is you know you it's insulting because my relative x y and z can't live independently and so but I can't live independently. I don't live independently. If you saw how high my support needs actually are, they're not they're not high in terms of I don't need I you know I don't need assistance speaking or dressing, but they're high in terms of I have quite a lot of chronic health conditions which are would be unmanageable without my husband advocating for me because they require multiple conversations with the, with the doctor, you know, like quite frequently and constant admin to keep on top of prescriptions and constantly remembering to take medications. I'd be dead, not well enough with my comorbid conditions to cook for myself and clean up after myself. I genuinely could not survive without, you know, without pretty much full-time care. And so when people sort of write your needs off they go well you're you you're fine you're mild but that's that's not a helpful it's not a helpful framework to look at disability to say well you can do one thing so you you should be able to do all things or you can't do some things therefore your life isn't valid and you're not valuable yeah somebody will see see you like that then it's like sometimes 
like somebody would only see one side of of you and you know like as everyone would know about themselves that there's many sides to uh, like them as a person and that's the same for mm-hmm. an autistic person everyone like varies from day to day and that's the same for autistic people right. having chronic health conditions or like your chronic health can be maybe a bit better than one day and you can have like certain periods of flare-ups and yeah. you're severely ill and that like does an impact on like being autistic as well and I think that flexibility of what, what autism is, like people forget how broad spectrum is. Yes, totally. I think they think a spectrum is left to right and it's, yeah. it's fixed. You're either mild or you're severe. You're either quirky or you're tragic. Like you say, it fluctuates. Also, it's it's interesting how people will use those good days against you. Well, you managed it last week you did so well the other week it's like well I was in a different situation the other week it's very hard to get people to understand the reality of your lived experience and and also when you think about how that works in terms of disability benefits where they effectively test your ability to do things in really like limited and regressive ways and it's unrealistic so if you can do something one day or you can crawl across a room in some cases I've heard horror stories then they assume that you are able to be completely independent and able to work and that you don't need support and it's again it's a it's a regressive picture it results in people not getting the financial or practical support that they need to live as you say with benefits and welfare system it focuses a lot on what can you do trying to find ways of like proving something off you rather than like what would like to me it seemed like the best approach would be like finding what do you need help with what like support resources you would need whether that's financial a benefit system where you didn't feel wonderful wouldn't it just a benefit system where you could actually state your needs and you didn't have to exaggerate not not that anyone's exaggerating but you know you don't feel like you have to present the worst possible case scenario at all times you can say look sometimes I'm able to do this most of the time I'm not and sometimes I might you know have a good day and and things are better but like 90% of the time and you know if you could present you know be treated like an adult be treated with you know uh, with some credit with the with the benefit of you know people people trusting you to relay your own experience yeah. i don't think most you know i'm sure there are very few outliers who just don't want to work i don't think 99.9% of people are just trying to cheat some system because they can't be bothered i think that's ludicrous and i think treating a hundred percent of people as if they're trying to scam you in case the 0.01% slip through. I would rather those people fraudulently claimed some benefits, these tiny nothing percentage of people, than the people who really need those benefits can't have an adult frank conversation about what their needs are without feeling under attack, without being worried that they're going to lose their livelihood or their support. Like with a benefit system you know have to keep on proving yourself and you know replaying for different things with conditions like autism and like your chronic illnesses they are temporary conditions you always mm-hmm. will be living with the conditions and being autistic so it's like it's quite time to prove it sometimes i think it'd be nice if you could have a like certificate of proof as like the person was talking with vesting rather than sometimes telling people she's autistic things much easier just to say you know who own specific needs that's the main half of like space of like having support and I think sometimes that can be preferable just to be able to like actually say what what your needs are yeah and like I'll say like it it would be handy if you could just have to forget this is what I need help with and as you say the system's funny too much adults just to like so you get like prove you like double that like one or zero point percent or whatever. I really believe it should be like an honor system. You should not have to prove anything to anyone. You should be treated like a grown up with honesty and agency. And also it's a system that locks autistic people out, especially if you don't have someone advocating for you. If yeah. you find admin difficult, if you have executive dysfunction issues, like I really do, I'm fortunate to not at this point in my life having to be reliant on benefits in any way. Um, I'm fortunate to be able to work and I'm fortunate that my husband works and that if I couldn't work, we'd probably be okay. If I had to 
regularly fill out forms, regularly advocate for myself face to face, know what the right things to say were and all of those things. That for me, someone who struggles greatly with executive function, that could be fatal. You know, that that could yeah. actually that could prevent me again. It's obstructive to the point of of being discriminatory against the people it purports to help. With autistic people having so very different current conditions, as you say, with like chronic illnesses, if you got like specific learning difficulties to learn disabilities, intellectual disabilities, then from filling and like going for the benefits post there's mm. in the system then can be incredibly tough and difficult. Yeah, absolutely. From from what we've been saying, it's like I think often like for conversations and understanding about disability community and autism and neurodivergent communities and their issues, we find that problematic. It's like the lack of having a balanced power where neurodivergent and disabled people aren't in the power to like set the language that they use around uh, diagnosis or mm. like the, uh, as you say, the benefits or educational support. There's a problem in general in autism discussions, and this has come up recently, that horrible Spectrum News article that came out. Spectrum News posted an article, which I, I felt, I'm going to be very careful with the language I use here for legal reasons, I felt was quite an unfair character assassination of some very, very good people who made some very reasonable points about a very problematic study. They were sort of quite, I, I think, quite comprehensively ripped to shreds and it was implied that they that they're impeding scientific progress and all of this. There is a problem with the way that the scientific community in general, I am not, I am, I am pro-science, but when you are studying a group of people and a marginalized group of people then you are claiming to speak for that group of people and you end up speaking over that group of people treating them like lab rats not listening to their lived experience not listening to the studies areas of study that might help improve their lives instead focusing on pathologizing them and focusing on uh, things that feel dangerously close to eugenics those are the people monopolizing the conversations about autism those are the people generally interviewed about autism on tv they're the people writing books about autism they're the people consulting on autism projects they're the people who are advising parents on their autistic children and autistic adults are sort of treated like they're hysterical or difficult trying to sort of whitewash the experience of being autistic and painted or romanticize it that's another word that comes like you're trying to romanticize autism when what you're trying to say is no 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 just please don't blink us out of existence we exist and we're valid and we like who we are but you could do these things to make our lives easier and maybe stop focusing so hard on trying to cure us it is frustrating and you know I don't blame like regular people for not having a clue what goes on because of course you want to trust experts and you should trust experts unfortunately in this case some of the experts are not particularly listening to the subjects they say they so desperately want to understand as you was saying with that it's like we should be able to trust experts but it's like often not you do feel like why can't there be like experts that are seen within the communities that are neurodivergent or disabled people are trusted for the authority of personal experience, it's important to be able to trust science and and believe in the facts of science. But like as science is supposed to define the answers of what the disabled and neurodivergent community went answers to finding ways of like support and understanding us in the ways we went to us, like the science community would naturally research autistic community if they try and understand more about autism and should really be listening to that community. I think the problem is is that you know we talk about science like this catch-all term and science it's studied by humans and humans set an agenda as to what they focus on. We're not talking about social sciences or psychology of trying to understand autistic people and our needs or we're not talking about pharmacological science in terms of trying to help people with things like sensory processing disorders or executive function or any kind of 
any kind of therapies that support us in our autistic identities and validate us, but but still help us to exist in the world. I'm not talking about ABA that tries to stamp out our autistic traits or or lessen the impact of autistic people on the people around them. It's really reductive for people to say, oh, you're impeding the progress of science because you don't want scientists to say, discover the gene, the autism gene. To take a step back, why? Why do you want to know what the gene is if you're not trying to do anything with it if you're not trying to eliminate it what is the purpose of it if you don't want prenatal screening if you don't want to effectively eugenics us out of existence what do you need to know that for and in the meantime there are many many autistic people who do exist who um you know we and and i'm not going to get into this trap of saying oh we're valuable to the world we are and yeah. any diversity, all diversity is valuable to the world. All diversity is is good. It offers different perspectives. It offers different talents, different gifts. But even if you are never able to contribute anything sort of in an economic sense to the world, it, it, it's irrelevant. You, we're human beings, we're valid, and we have needs now. I don't care what gene caused me. I care whether or not I can get through a Zoom call without my eyes watering. I don't care what my spit says about why I'm autistic. I care about being able to call the doctor or fill out a form or be able to work if I want to. It's not about impeding science. It's about trying to just steer the ship in a direction that's actually going to be actively helpful to us and not treat us like a problem to be solved. That's a fair point to say because it's about like as you seen with the issue of the looking at the, like maybe they studied and stuff like the genes of mm. the causations of autism. It should be like a reason that the autistic community themselves would want to find out, asking by that the you want to find this out and like examine the ethics of it. I think that. Like it's then difficult for the autistic community and the neurodivergent disabled communities. Oh, the majority of the scientific community seems to be far apart from these communities that they're supposed to be doing research on and working for, really. Yeah. Any autistic science, uh, scientists in the field of autism research should be able to cover informative where they can advise on and have ability to direct the research or like speaking to focus groups totally. be like finding out the things which they want to know as we say an autistic person would want to know maybe the stuff that like the scientists like the science facts of the mental health and the occurrence of like stuff like depression and anxiety mm. and trauma and or to as you say about the sensory conditions if it's activity to bright light so that can cause headaches and something that can produce light sensitive and different stuff like that. That's like the stuff that an autistic person would want to support if not like knowing so much about the like autism genes or different stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, totally agree. How do I sleep through a night? I don't think I've ever slept through a whole yeah. night. That would be great if they could find a way to deal with sleep disturbance in autistic people, because a lot of the solutions in general for a lot of things, they are based, understandably, because neurotypical people are the majority, they are based with neurotypical people in mind. And so a lot of the, a lot of the therapies, a lot of the medications, and we, and we also, by the way, can have odd reactions to medications. Things work differently for yeah. us. All of these things. I would love research into specifically into how to help autistic people with with different conditions and and in in medicalized settings and all sorts of things but we don't get a say in in where that research is focused and we're treated like we want to get in the way of that progress instead because sometimes in a day-to-day life like you can think of specific question that you're thinking of like oh i wonder like oh like so many different like chronic illnesses tend to occur in aut- autistic yeah. people, or as we, you were saying about the, or like very different things, like with medication and the sleep issues. Like, how to, like, does this all because, like, as you say, not like the community's been more far advanced, and it's like, I think, like, the developing its understanding of the autistic experience far more mm-hmm. than the holistic community does about us and as I say like 
the legendary woman majority of this more or less sticks on end of research and work in the science field. And then it's not examining these things, so we still yet to have answers and research into the issues of like sleep. Yeah, just expediting diagnoses of comorbid conditions could be really useful. If you have a comprehensive picture of, say, like you say, comorbid conditions and different autistic profiles and perhaps the likelihood the statistical likelihood of of different autistic people with different traits having different comorbid conditions then you wouldn't have to say for years go through an holistic medical community that isn't designed to know what your comorbid conditions might be that you are say automatically when you receive an autism diagnosis referred on to test if you have chronic pain or if you have any chronic conditions that are unexplained you are then referred on for things that might explain them with that are commonly comorbid with autism that would be amazing yeah because as you're saying about like that in the diagnosis process like I was like I was diagnosed at 10 and like like much of the years and like into like like up until age, it was only like when I started to understand how autism affects me. It's important to be able to like find to be more understanding of how it affects you. And then like I have a question that's asked about how do you sleep and then like what like do you experience chronic pain and see if like there's a the conditions mm. affect you and like that screening would be so important because as you say with chronic illnesses it does take years to diagnose and find the answers out more medical specialists whether they give the ones of diagnosing us or general practitioners GPs who were more like trained in autism in autistic people and supporting mm. autistic people so can get like some direct support from when we go to like see about symptoms and see like how they link with our autism the general statistics of those of the community so it can be easier to understand or health conditions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it it is exhausting, isn't it? It makes you feel a bit like the people who are supposed to be responsible for the cutting edge developments in in your care effectively as a disabled person they view you with contempt as a community they think that you're all hysterical and in the way of them that's such a problem if you hate us so much like go away don't study like go and study like that someone someone said you know if that's study rocks or whatever study (laughs) study something else don't study a marginalized community who have support needs and and need people to take those seriously it's like when you think about rocks it's like they've been studied for years not like they do a much much happening with a rock at the minute that like needs help urgent help Like, when you think about, like, when it comes to stuff like that, uh, like, what should scientifically focus on, or, like, careers, or areas of investment, and where careers should go in science, like, it should be definitely be more prioritised of what impacts life and what, like, is in danger, as you're saying, with, like, like, the research into autism is quite important advice, as you can, like, improve like the quality of life and like the longevity in life as understanding more about the mental health of autistic people and our health conditions can like extend our life as you know like mental mm-hmm. health and stuff like that can it impact on our life expectancy totally and I also think that there's a shame that the medicalization, the, the type of medicalization and pathologizing of autistic traits and the way that we're discussing the scientific community really impacts the relationship as well between parents of autistic children and autistic adults, because parents of autistic children are being told by experts like your child is basically broken and you need to send them to this therapy to make them normal and look at the look at the amazing results they're not bothering you as much anymore what they're hearing from autistic adults is you know quite a lot of anger and frustration it's not clicking for them that their autistic child is going to grow up to be an autistic adult perhaps it would be prudent if they love their child to create a world where their child isn't demonized disregarded or bullied out of out of their perspective because they're no longer a child I absolutely want to say that this is not like 
anti-parents of autistic children. I think there's a huge difference between, I think there's an autism parent with a capital A and a capital P who makes that their identity and who you know, will post their child's meltdowns online. Really, the focus is on how hard it is to be around us. And I think that's that's a problem. That's a problem for me. And I'm, I'm never going to be okay with that. There are so many wonderful parents of autistic children who I talk to on a regular basis who reach out a lot. And they just want to know how to do the best by their kids. The adult autistic community online is really helpful and useful to them. So I don't want to make it sound like we're all at odds and there's this war yeah. between parents of autistic kids and autistic adults. There isn't. But I think there is a certain narrative that is presented to parents that they then come up against the adult community and they they don't know what to make of it. Yeah, I had a feeling that you were talking about the majority of the autistic parents community when you were speaking about that. As you like, I had hint that you were saying about the information. Sometimes medical professionals give them, and you know, like some of the research and things you can find out about autism and research online. Sometimes a parent might be led down the wrong path, yeah. like some of the scary stuff you might read online and like doom stuff about autism. And I say that make them making their child sound invalid or like, you know, like not speaking like of the autistic child. And I say for the child with higher sport needs, then I can impact of how they see how the child's seen for their life and it can give them like a negative experience of how they uh, experience sport and medical professionals telling like the child uh, like not movie and then it can be quite hard for, for parents to fight all that. Yeah, absolutely. If you, you know, if you tell, if if you tell a parent your child is ill, your child is broken, your child needs these therapies in order to have a normal life, they will never have a normal life if they don't have these therapies. And you're not really going to necessarily stop to interrogate that you're going to believe the experts in the vast majority of cases you should believe experts they know what they're talking about in this case I think there's it comes down to a fundamental lack of empathy ironically and a fundamental lack of human understanding that your autistic child might not want the quote-unquote normal life that you think is so important and all these milestones that you value they're your values they're not necessarily your child's values their society's values Again, you know, like, for example, stopping autistic children from playing the the way that they want to play. Things that are totally harmless, like stop lining up your toys, play with them properly. Stop doing, stop stimming. Stimming doesn't hurt anyone. Sit still. Uh, You shouldn't have such narrow interests. You should want to go on holiday. You should want to break your routine. These aren't a lot of the time I'm not speaking for everyone obviously a lot of the time these aren't the things that make us happy the things that make us happier hyper focusing on our interests the things that make us happier lining things up in a pleasing way as kids the things that make us happier are the things that we're naturally doing to try and stamp them out of us isn't it's not giving us the gift of a quote normal life it's it's taking away the life that feels good to us in favor of a life that looks good to you it's like for for happy life it's a big problem what makes us feel good and what makes us safe mm. as we're sitting out today. And I think from, like, historically then, you know, like, sometimes the labels have had huge impact and now people are perceived autistic children if they were diagnosed at the age of 10. And, like, from that, because it was given label made Asperger's at the time, like, as you know, it just he was all mm. autistic. I think that... Had to impact and like lack of support, or lack of understanding, like my mother was given, because like I think she had like a set of documents and like didn't hear much afterwards, and like yeah. yes, then it comes to be like any like support you would have to like try to reach out voluntarily, like to different parent groups, and I can be quite daunting, probably not feel like the best way to get like support. I think like I think like what would help things a lot better is if parents and children were given examples of what of like autistic people by wherever they're coming into schools and speaking with parents. Yes. Yeah. Totally. I think like stuff like autism and other neurodivergent disabilities would be like taught in school. So like it's can be normalized and like I find it would be better way of like advocating for your needs and understanding your needs and like being able to say what makes you happy what makes you uncomfortable if like you find the things a bit too loud and how to 
us for support from like being able to have like a space where we could also like tell our stories in the media and create representation of autistic people telling their stories and they were diverged and telling their stories so it's not just like an article news article of like a journalist researching into telling our story off and off and but like an autistic person telling them itself that's also important someone like you like writing your own life in a memoir yeah and it's getting better but we still have quite a prevalence and an alarming prevalence of autism shows or autism books or autistic coded characters being written by neurotypical writers it's really tricky because like obviously writing is about imagination and you can't just write books that are just about your own identity and you know and nothing else because they're boring and homogenous however if you are dealing with a minority experience that doesn't have a huge voice of its own yet, if there aren't hundreds upon hundreds, it's getting a lot better, but there aren't yet hundreds upon hundreds of stories from autistic people. And there certainly aren't many diverse autistic stories. They tend to be, and, you know, I recognize I'm part of this problem, you know, I'm Jewish, but I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm a white passing Jewish woman. I'm white skinned. I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. It's a completely different experience, say, from being black and autistic or any other identity intersection that means that you're, you're going to be interpreted in a different way or your story hasn't been heard as much so until we have this breadth of stories from autistic people themselves I really wish neurotypical writers would just step away from it just just until until there's enough of a baseline cultural understanding if you want to have at it after that go for it but when we are still at a stage where autistic people are just trying to make themselves understood on such a fundamental level and it's the the type of autistic stories that are being told are still so narrow it's very frustrating to see sort of TV shows being commissioned with like created by holistic people that are about quote autism. And it is, but you know, there's also conversely um, been a, a recent sort of raft of autistic led shows being picked up. Elm has her show coming out on BBC. Holly Smales has just been a- announced geek girl for Netflix. That's all really great and exciting we need we need a lot more of that as you say a lot more from that from when you were diagnosed first how the word autism put to you then you was thinking of the maths you take green man like stereotype from like yourself as you say it's like Elma Nicole and uh Holly Smale writing their stories out and speaking about autism in the media it does help go a long way for years and decades there's been a misrepresentation of autistic women a lack of representation and so I think now it's like a start in the progress of like seeing more representation of autistic women but I think it's great that you've been able to tell your story in a book and from your own experiences as there's not many places that a young autistic woman would be able to find much about somebody who's gone for like mental health struggles, given all the labels, late diagnoses, to struggles in relationships and that yeah. areas. I think, like, you speaking as a Jewish woman, autistic woman, I think that's still important because there still has, hasn't been many, like, Jewish uh, women, re- autistic women represented to the media and it's important to tell us many different stories from like the decades old stereotypes and broaden that out. Totally. Within Jewish culture specifically, there are certain stereotypes and ways that like Jewish women are read that can feed into our lack of diagnosis. There's a stereotype of the very big, emotional, hysterical Jewish woman. And that can mean that our traits are are missed because we're being perceived in ways that are misogynistic. There's actually quite a high, weirdly quite high prevalence. I don't know the statistics. I'm speaking anecdotally, but I think, you know, that autism in the Jewish community is quite high. A lot of the other women who've been writing memoirs and stuff are actually, especially in the UK, I know are Jewish, like Joanne Lindbergh, Laura James. It's really interesting that maybe culturally there was something in our upbringing that meant that we weren't recognized or maybe that's me over analyzing but I think every minority community will have something like that to different degrees in some cases it might be very dangerous if you're a young 
autistic black man in America and you're not diagnosed and you have a meltdown, that can be yeah. a really dangerous situation if you're interpreted through a racist lens or by a racist police officer or a racist teacher or you're restrained. It's, it, that can be different consequence to me who is for intents and purposes as whiteness and Judaism is really complicated because yeah. Nazis, but like to the wider world for all intents and purposes, unless I announce that I'm Jewish, I'm white. The consequences of me having a meltdown in public are just embarrassing versus for, for someone else can be really dangerous. And all of these experiences need to be part of this big mosaic. It can't just be white folks telling their stories all the time. We have to make room for more voices, amplify more voices, and, and make sure that you know, the publishing world, the commissioning world is telling these stories and not just the, the ones that they feel comfortable with. I was just saying, it's been good that you've been able to establish and find a, like a community of Jewish men who are autistic telling their stories. But as we're saying, it's important that black men in America like black men around the world could start to be able to give them platforms to tell their stories mm. to safely have a platform where they can start advocating for themselves so we can have this conversation around like the ableism, the racism and in like within a black community you know how to support black autistic community. It's important as you say in the tell of varying stories and like make community stronger and more represented yeah absolutely and you know the awareness that a lot of us we might be on the lgbtqia under that rainbow yeah. somewhere quite likely we tend to not be the cis straight het understanding that can be a really crucial part of our identities too and so intersectionality and in, in who gets to tell their stories is yeah. so important we've got such a long way to go with that the progress is so painfully slow that's what still feels like because as you say not like right now in terms of like who has the uh, ability to get like in their published or have the story told in like a tv show to any type of film or documentary or whatever it's still marginalized food it's still right passing people like from some from privileged background, mm. write a book or, you know, get something published and into story. And it's hard to still got many hurdles to come in it. Yeah, absolutely. And those hurdles start, you know, right at the beginning. They start with, with really complex things like socioeconomic disparity. They start with encouragement and education and opportunity. Yeah. These small acts of discrimination that will shape your whole life. It takes, for a disabled person, it takes a huge amount of support and, and financial security and everything else to be able to sort of make it in an industry like the arts. That's true of whether you're disabled or not. It's, it's a very privileged industry. But if you are disabled, it's harder to say, hold down a job and support yourself and have the time and energy to write at the end of the day or to have that self-belief it's the problems are structural and societal and their problems in publishing and their problems in commissioning and their problems in in lots of things all we can do is keep passing the mic and making noise so we can all do better with that I think I tend to like yeah. I'm probably quite a self-absorbed person I tend to just like relay my own experience and and forget to to amplify other people and I think it's really important to remember it's important to remember as you introduce yourself as a somebody who's written for comedy shows and uh, Britain and like typical shows. Was like to already been established as a writer in the field of comedy. Did that help you like to have the confidence to go on to book writing and well uh, be writing your debut with member? I think there's a sort of ironic tragedy that had I not already had some sort of profile and some sort of success in the field and I was you know I'm not I wasn't wildly successful I was still starting out to a great extent but I think had I not already established myself to some degree I don't know how seriously I would have been necessarily taken if I just come along and said oh I'm autistic and I want to be a right I don't you know I don't know what how the industry would have received me if I hadn't already been like in the industry and people hadn't known me a little bit it wasn't something that was an an adult. And I think that's another thing to be really aware and mindful of, that people shouldn't have to mask their autistic traits or be late diagnosed or anything else in order to have those opportunities and to be taken seriously in the industry. If I did notice after my diagnosis that, that the opportunities changed, people stopped almost overnight, stopped asking me into writer's rooms. It's almost like there was some sort of stigma attached to being autistic where they thought I might suddenly, even though I'd never been a problem in the past, suddenly be very volatile in a room or not be able to cope or something. I got 
a lot of bigger opportunities. I got long-term projects, narrative projects, book projects. It actually works really nicely for me because I, I much prefer working in my own time and at home. But it is interesting that things did change. Things did shift with the way. And, and I think people people are sort of a bit jumpy around me until they get to know me a bit they're like oh you're not gonna bite my head off suddenly or start crying or probably will start crying I cry a lot it's happy crying it's it's interesting I I had one person who I worked with for a long time who always thought I was quite competent and then in passing disclosed my diagnosis and they started calling me like little buddy (laughs) I guess I'm little buddy now (laughs) you know like you know you had bigger opportunities to expose some Something off a positive, weren't it? As included in writer's rooms then, when you had a diagnosis. And, like, even though you've been able to work a bit more flexible with doing the, these bigger projects and opportunities that you're grateful for, but I guess you would have, like, the opportunity to have always been included after your diagnosis in the writer's room and still quite encouraged to uh, go in and write for television shows. Part of it is like the, the pandemic and sort of a natural and I'm at higher risk of complications of COVID. So I, I tend to stay out of things. This predates the pandemic by a couple of years. And I did notice those sort of face to face group opportunities drying up because maybe people have had autism training that says we don't like groups or they're worried because of things they've heard. I don't know what the reason was or if it was just a coincidence and I'm reading too much into it. But it did yeah. feel like that side of things dried up the longer term, like bigger picture projects started happening and um you know for for the longest time it just looked like I wasn't working because I was working quietly on a book that hadn't been announced so that was a really weird time for me because I put so much of my identity into like I write in writer's rooms it's really cool and then like it just wasn't happening anymore ultimately I'm happy with the way things have gone and I didn't change it I'm happy with where I am the thing is like when you like like felt that way you get less opportunities you would think quite in introspective then I guess there's some things that should be a bit unadjusted in the, the workplace of writers' rooms to make autistic people and the more divergent people feel included in the spaces. Yeah, I think there's a long way to go. When I first started wearing my sunglasses into writers' rooms, because it hurts not to, I would get comments. There was this one really unpleasant experience. I was doing a room in this guy who I'd never met before just came in and started interrogating me about why I was wearing my sunglasses. The guy I was writing with to get rid of him, she has a condition. He was, he just stood there and, oh, a condition. How interesting. And he just stood there glaring at me. And I was thinking, this is nothing. Just go. This is nothing to do. What's it to you? What's on my face? Yeah. I'm, I'm doing my work leave me alone and so you know it makes you a bit more apprehensive about going into these spaces when people don't have that education that to understand why you you might have different needs to them yeah because like if a person says that you feel quite intimidated you wouldn't know how to deal with and like it's enough to deal with that in the workplace because i'd say that you're probably working in a room like i probably break fluorescent lights yeah and if you got the sun coming in it's it's quite bright then. You would need like something like sunglasses. Then it's quite hard to explain things. And as I said, it's enough to learn. So what was like working in a like new like a writing room on comedy shows? Like, like trying to write jokes on the news of the week. It's a lot of fun. It can be a high pressure. If you're like me and you find it difficult, what what was always tricky for me was when people were chucking jokes out into the room and when it was a group situation like that and everyone's making noise and, and you're like, no, 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 I need quiet to think of the jokes. Like, I can't do it like this. There were some shows where that was part of the process. You would have a half hour where everyone just chucked things out and whatever makes it on, makes it on. I always would sit there close to tears during that point. Like, I can't think because you're all talking and all I can think is the last thing you said also an issue of comfort like I have a writing partner for for screenwriting stuff and he's brilliant and wonderful we tend to build on stuff that each other says I actually find it a lot easier to to work when I'm talking through things with him when there's everyone talking at once it's quite a lot most of the time writers rooms can be really fun if you manage if you do have people who understand what your needs are that you just need to go away for half an hour and work on things by yourself and you can't be in that sort of hectic environment if you can convey those needs and people can be understanding then it's great so I think more understanding is needed and more inclusivity and not just tokenistic inclusivity where they're like oh we're recruiting neurodivergent people but they don't really understand what that means or how to properly support 
neurodivergent people once they're yeah. actually in the space because as you're saying after like then like you can go like conversation by bouncing around then you know like it's hard to think because you're trying to process the noise of boy everyone's saying around you it kind of gets quite uh, crammed and busy with the, the like the century processing stuff probably find it easier just to be able to listen to sort bit of that and then reflect independently and then feedback the ideas and I guess that's probably where you find it's been more preferable to write writing books or writing articles. Yeah definitely for me personally but you know everyone's different that doesn't mean I'd never want to do a room again I think I'd want to do a room understanding myself better and being able to better convey what I need from from yeah. that situation. Yeah, as you hinted, your careers evolved when to play things a bit different. For sure. Published your book. Have you found yourself working on any other projects? I have, and it's one of those really, really annoying things. Where there's a lot going on and none of it's been announced yet. So it yeah, just, like it's just another couple like, of years where it looks like I'm not working. <laughs> so like, in, like, wait for more to book and this stuff you work on. Give people like a, like a, so like a reason why you like to purchase the book or what they can expect from reading your book um gosh it's one autistic person's experience if you're looking for a textbook on autism it's not for you it's a comedy memoir it has its sad bits but ultimately it's there's a lot of gags most people seem to appreciate them some people don't it's okay it's a book with a sense of humor it doesn't take itself too seriously i think it's quite a light quick read I think the misunderstanding is that it's like it's for autistic people and that's it everyone knows an autistic person everybody everybody at least one like you probably know a lot of autistic people you might not know that you know autistic people but you do and you might read the book and recognize yourself or someone else that you know and love in it or just understand how to better support people around you or what's going on for them how to not put them through the kind of things that autistic people have been put through historically i'd say it's a read that and read lots of other books by autistic people as well there are yeah. lots of great books by autistic people don't let that be the only thing that you read and think well i know about autism now because i'm I'm one person which could go to it's like a tech not like a textbook you know for so much too much of a factual uh, or like a you know telling of autism because you know like that's already been done and you know like it's like sometimes if you're trying to find like a nice book to read on autism, like an easy one to read, you know, like you don't want to be faced with something too jargony and hard to follow. So yeah. it's good to just have like something that's authentic, like stories of an autistic person to yeah. follow. And as you say, you know, like it's a good starting point of like an autistic person's account. And like from that, you could read other many autistic people's uh, books that are coming out. Yeah, and absolutely. I think it's quite helpful to elements of comedy and because you know, like then as you say, it does make it easier to read and easier to follow and entertaining to read. I think that it can be quite emotive book of elements elements of personal trauma and loss of family members, caring for family members, to have the different elements of empathizing as an autistic person. The book brings out elements of like what somebody could read in an article about autism or what treats people might see and bring that to life and humanize it and like like see see how it can be seen in a person they may know and like to be able to like go all oh, that's you know maybe like that makes a bit more sense of the person yeah. I know or makes a bit more sense of the autistic person I am but makes it be easier to empathize if you just read a natural story of like somebody's life and somebody's Treats of autism rather than just list what's best to be around an autistic person. That was the aim. I'm really glad that that's that's coming across in some way. So that's yeah. that's really good to hear. I see it was pretty easy, but like I see there's like been like certain points where like dealing with family loss and we've been like moments for me to make point to pause definitely some trigger warnings there yeah. if, you've, if you've lost loved ones to cancer or there's some difficult stuff in there and yeah. so like all the content warnings like read with yeah. caution take breaks if you need to you don't have to read it if it if it sounds yeah. too much it's a real life story some crappy things yeah. happen in life when you've written it you'll probably need to have like breaks from it yourself and yeah. Well, did it feel like writing down very personal things that anybody could pick up on a self and read? 
Yeah, it's not an easy process. I have really great editors and publishers. They were very supportive and really let me lead on what I felt comfortable sharing. It's interesting that, that like the more I share, the less anxious I feel about it because what are people going to use as a gotcha? I've said everything myself. It's, it's out there. There's something sort of empowering about owning your stuff, not being ashamed or scared of what people might find out about you because you're up front. There is something liberating about that. It's not for everyone and I wouldn't recommend it for yeah. everyone. For me, I was all right. I know a lot of people yeah. have felt differently. A lot of different writers have, have found it very difficult, but I'm, I've been okay. You engage a lot of social media and find that as a way of engaging the artistic community, learning about yourself and like the injustices of in the community and different issues within it, so as helps you feel less alone. And the difficult thing about being artistic is changes change within like social media, with like way like Twitter and social media is gone, and like mm. you put very uh, frequent use of social media and had certain negative experiences from it, like certain negative comments made by other people to, towards your experience of using social media and how you find that like, certain changes being made to social media. The Great Musk takeover hasn't been wonderful. Social media has always been a difficult space for anyone with any marginalised identity. I've been Jewish on the internet for a, yeah. a lot longer than I've been autistic on the internet. I've been both for five years and quite publicly. It's a mixed bag. I've made some really, really great friends via Twitter, via social media, and I wouldn't have those relationships in my life. I've had amazing opportunities come from social media, but you do, you get a lot of abuse. It can be very difficult. So if you take that stuff to heart, I used to take it to heart pretty badly it used to be very hurtful to me I still have moments if I'm sort of in a bad mood or if I'm emotional about something else where I'll just sort of go off uh, if somebody says the wrong thing most of the time I feel at this point I feel pretty resilient it's like what else are you gonna say come on I've been doing this for long enough I just say like if you are using Twitter as a space to organize block liberally be careful what you dm people because I think it will all it is all going to tumble out at some point. You know, Twitter's very broken. Just lock down when you have to, take breaks when you have to, use it wisely, use it carefully and put your mental health first at all times because not everyone has a hard shell, can be really damaging. Yeah, I can see you've been able to learn over the years and adapt as your like, social media presence and your follower account has grown up to take self-care and do things for your mental health, not let, you know, where... Uh, Social media, yes, can be a positive thing, but it can be quite negative as well. So there's no answers to it. From being a Jewish autistic woman, you've seen much uh, ableism, anti-Semitism and misogyny on the platform. So I guess, you know, like you've really seen the two sides of the platform. Yeah. Yeah, you get to see it all. You know, it's all sides of humanity, isn't it? It's the the bad and the ugly, but, you know, it's amplified and we're not necessarily meant to deal with that kind of, that level of constant input. So, yeah, yeah, just self-care is is what I'd say. If if you're you're on it, like, great, but just, you know, look after yourself. In the interview, this is one of the final questions. And if a tricky one comes to your head first, like, what, like, what one thing as an neurodivergent artistic person would you change in the world to make it better for yourself or other autistic people? Oh, one thing. <laughs> this is a dream world. I would yeah. have a specific, like, highly trained carer for every autistic person, like, like a support person who, like, does all your stuff. I have that. I have that in my husband. It's wonderful. Can't recommend it enough. I would, I would have that for everybody. Everybody gets a John. Everybody yeah. gets a John to call the doctor for them and make their food for them and do the shopping and do the things that are scary and stressful so that you can do the things that, that you, that you're good at and not have to suffer. Yeah. I would clone him and I would, I would distribute him the ethics of that I'm, I'm not going to think about that I would mass manufacture my husband and give everyone one. Oh, that's a nice compliment for your husband isn't it <laughs> you can get my book pretty much anywhere you buy books it's called drama queen one autistic woman and a life of unhelpful labels 